Greetings, I am Topher Delaney, and we are here with Daryl Schramm, and this is our podcast, Garden with Topher Delaney, and today we are gardening with Daryl. And the reason Daryl is here is I was astounded by a book he wrote entitled Rainbow, and Rainbow is a stunningly pretty rose. And Daryl will tell you about this rose as we do our interview. So Daryl is a retired professor. He is a rose historian. He is a dancer of the Latin music persuasion. Daryl is here to tell us about where he comes from, how he got here, and what his interests are in terms of garden. Hi, Daryl. Hello, how are you, Topher? I'm good. So, Daryl, my first question to you is, where were you born? I was born in a house in North Dakota. My grandmother was the doula. I was born in a a blizzard in North Dakota, where sometimes it would get as low as 40 below. My father had to dig us out of the house at least twice in my childhood, and I grew up on a farm. And what is the name of this town that might be near you? The town is Hazen. It's still very much there, uh, although many of the towns have vanished but it's on the western side of the Missouri River, about eight miles from where Lewis and Clark spent the winter of 1804. And is this town a community? Is, is it known to be a certain type of community? Yeah, it's very, very German. It was settled by Germans, a few Norwegians, but mostly Germans, and everyone spoke German when I grew up. Now fewer people do. We went to church in German. We spoke German to all our relatives and friends. I did not speak English until I was nearly six years old. German was my first language, even though my parents were born in North Dakota as well. So this was an insular community of it some was, kind. It was, it was, yes. It was, and was it a, a religious community or was it no farming was it, the focus? It was primarily a farming community. And all the farms in North Dakota uh, at that time were one mile apart. And consequently, the farmers all helped each other in this, sowing their crops and harvesting their crops. And so they would always get together for those two occasions. When all one hears about the Amish, is is this similar to the Amish in its community, or I've never thought of it in that way. No, but when you're so far apart from each other, you rely on each other mm-hmm. a lot, and it didn't matter whether they were strangers who had just moved there or whether they were your own people. I like to say that we grew up with very few biases, prejudices, other than maybe in religion. I do know my grandparents were very staunch Lutherans and they had a difficult time with any other religion. But when you know that you need each other and you're so far apart and sometimes you're stuck in the snow and all that kind of thing, you 
don't want to insult anyone, you don't want to alienate anyone, you realize you may always need these people because there are so few of you and you're so far apart. So your community is your resource. Yes. And it's in a sense, it's a reciprocity. It's resource and reciprocity, which is a really great value to have, I think, going forward. It also makes you very self-reliant. We had no heating. We had no refrigeration. Mm -hmm. We kept the milk in the horse trough. Mm -hmm. We used coal in our wood-burning stoves. We had no electricity. Mm -hmm. We had kerosene lanterns. How do you leave North Dakota and come to California? I mean, that is... Wow, a big, big ride. Well, it's true. The year before we came to California, my father was working on this dam. They were building a dam in North Dakota. And he quickly rose to the upper echelons of of that project. And he was asked if he would like to be transferred to California. So my father came home one day and said to my mother, what would you say if I got a chance to work in California? So she told me, she said, I'd say, let's move tomorrow. And he was quite astonished. He was quite astonished because my mother was the oldest of 12 children. And he thought she would never want to leave North Dakota because she had such a huge family. But we did. And I was almost 12 years old when we moved to California. And what part did you move to? Well, my dad was transferred to work on the Monticello Dam, which is Lake Berryessa today. Oh. Yes, and so we lived in a couple of places for like two weeks or so until we could actually find a place. But then we moved to Woodland, Woodland, California. What was your dad's job on the dam that he would have been brought in from North Dakota? I mean, that's a very specialized request. Well, he would supervise. Uh He was kind of a superintendent, a a supervisor. Competent of a building. Yes looking for competent builders. Right. That's what it sounds like. So did you grow up in Woodland? Is it, or did you stay there? Uh, well, my parents stayed there for a while. I had a chance to attend high school in Oakland. There was a, an old high school that's no longer there, and it gave you a Renaissance education. My parents did not know that. My parents were not very well-educated. My mother still spoke a very, very broken English and was unaware that she was, would insert dozens of German words in her English, Mm -hmm. even when she was talking to Mm -hmm. only English-speaking people. But at any rate, they had been told about this high school, and and so they, my dad just thought this was an opportunity for his son, and so I went to this private high school. Most of my instructors were professors who had fled Nazi Germany, and so my education was very, very broad and just very Renaissance. You had to know, learn and know music. You had to art, literature. You had to take a language right away when you were a freshman in high school. So this is a private school in Oakland. What is its name? Its name was Concordia. Concordia. Mm-hmm. And when did it stop being a, a school, roughly? Uh, in the, I think, 76, 1976 mm-hmm. or 78, something mm-hmm. like that, they closed. 
And from there, you have a Renaissance education, which is probably going to stead you well. And where, where do you go from there? Well, I went to a teacher's college uh, my freshman and sophomore year, but I was so bored. I, I had such a good education that everything bored me except mm-hmm. chemistry, and I did very poorly in that. <laughs> I was an A student <laughs> except in chemistry, but that bored me too. So, <laughs> so I came back to California. And then you finished out here, and where did you finish up? I got my BA from Chico State University. And then did you go further? It sounds like you... Yes, yeah. I got my master's at University of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And because I got my master's in the arts, there is no PhD in the arts. Oh, really? I didn't know that. No. no. So my field was in writing and, and and the fine arts, and so that's as far as I could go. Was your profession as a teacher? Yeah, I was I was an instructor in the field of composition, rhetoric and composition. And for two years, or almost two years, I was also the head of the department. So you go through this very kind profession, which I think being a teacher is a kind profession. One of the giving professions, it's called. It's a giving profession. I definitely would see that. And that it requires patience and fortitude and humor, I would think. How did you move to Vallejo? Did you always live in Vallejo, California? Most of my adult years, I lived in, well, in the Bay Area. I started out in San Jose, and I was there for, in the San Jose area for about three years, but moved to San Francisco and lived there for a good quarter of a century. Ah, yeah. I was with my partner of 27 years, who has since deceased, but uh, we lived in San Francisco all those years, and it was around 1998 when we looked in Berkeley, we looked in Alameda, and then someone mentioned Vallejo, and, and some of our friends lived here then, and we checked it out, and we liked it and moved here. Was a garden part of your decision when you moved here, like the home? It was part of his decision. He was the one who gardened roses. I gardened mostly vegetables and, and a few flowers. But he had about 45 rose bushes, and he brought many of them with us when we came. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's because of him that I got interested in roses. About two years before he died, we went up to Mendocino, and we went to this old garden rose nursery, and I saw a rose there, the likes of which I had never seen. And I just said, I've never seen anything so beautiful, you know. And he said, oh, do you like that? And I said, oh, like I said, I love it. I'll buy it for you. So he bought it, and that was my introduction to old garden roses, vintage roses. What was that rose? In French, it's called Sambruya. Uh-huh. S-A-M-B-R-E-U-I-L. I think Sambruya means dream mm. in French, which is interesting. In mm. a I don't know. Connection. So you see this rose, you're smitten with it. He buys it for you. It's a nice gesture to buy a rose for someone else. And that begins your passion? Well, it did. And I realized that I didn't care for some of the roses he'd been growing because they were very modern roses and they did nothing for me. They all looked too much the same. and I don't know. And They didn't have the interesting scent that so many old roses have. So 
Folks uh, who are listening to this, the real parting of the waters here is that Daryl is talking about a division of old roses, heritage roses, and new roses. And that is very significant, that parting. And I think as we continue on in this discussion and visit, let's focus on that because I think a lot of us don't know what that difference really is. You've said there's a magnificent scent. Could you elaborate on what you would be looking for in an old rose versus a new rose? Well, the most obvious thing, if you observe the rose plant, is that modern roses have a sheen to the leaves. They they have glossy leaves. Old roses, with an exception of a few, and they are rambling roses, do not have, they have a very matte or dull finish to the leaves. So that's a very fast and easy way to tell them. Secondly, most modern roses have a bud that is scrolled as it opens. That is not so with the old rose. They're flatter, generally much more flat. Many of them, but not all of them, are what we call quartered. The the face of the rose really has four little sections, Mm -hmm. the petals. Distinctive distinctive forms as opposed to a vase-shaped form. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it's not that... Petaled, vase-shaped, upright form. Right. Right. And that's the other thing. Most people today buy hybrid teas which I must say is not the same thing as a tea. Some people will call a hybrid tea a tea, and that's, they're not the same. The hybrid tea comes from the tea rose. Anyway. What is the difference? What would be the confusion there? Tea and a hybrid tea, what is the difference? Well, first of all, it's a little bit like people saying niners when they mean 49ers. They're leaving off one of the very important distinctive words. A hybrid tea is a rose that has been hybridized from a tea rose and a hybrid perpetual rose. These Ah, are two different classes ah, of roses. Okay. And so when they crossed the tea rose with the hybrid perpetual, they came up with a hybrid tea. They used the first word of hybrid perpetual and the tea. Go 49ers, yeah, I see. see. And one of the big differences between a tea rose and a hybrid tea is most hybrid teas have naked legs. The bottom of the bush is bare, and to me, that's ugly. The tea rose is a full bush down to the ground. I see. The leaves go down to the ground. As do the heritage, the older roses. Most of the older roses. Yes. Is there a cutoff date when you say older roses? Is it like well, 1930? It, depend, it depends you, upon who you're talking to. Whether you're how talking, about we're talking to you? <laughs> well, the American Rose Society classifies the modern rose as any rose after 1867. Oh, that's a long time ago. Yeah. And that's because that's when a rose was first designated as a hybrid 1867. Initially, it was classified as a bourbon rose, and then when they realized these two roses have been crossed to create that, they'll call. And that rose is called La France, La France, and it is not the first hybrid tea. Then they we realized since that there were a few other roses that had been crossed earlier. So. That is very helpful to understand in a timeline, really, the length of time that roses have been grown and then 
shifted by hybridization and by, frankly, modern methods of propagation. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to write Rainbow? Partly through frustration. (laughs) When my partner died, I started collecting more and more old roses. And then I would try to find out information about them. And sometimes I did find out information. But many times I did not. Or it was so little that it was just tantalizing and I wanted to know more. Where were you buying these roses? Were they in nursery? Where where would someone buy an old fat? Is there a place called like Heirloom Roses? Well, there is a place called Heirloom Roses in in Oregon, in Northern Oregon. By example... Could you just share now some names of different places that people might go to? Okay. Burlington Roses in Visalia. That is still ongoing. There is Green Mantle Roses, which is in in Northern California. That is still ongoing. There's Rogue Valley Roses in Oregon, still ongoing. And there are many others like Rose Emporium in, in Texas and... And, and the heirloom rose Yeah, these are all in the heir, heirloom rose area. Right. And I also got many of them by ordering them. Mm-hmm. So if they're not near you, you can order them. Mm-hmm. And all of these venues would be sending you roses. I mean, some of them or you'd have to drive up to Oregon. Yes. There are a few that do not ship. And there is Russian River Roses, which is not that far from here, maybe an hour and a half. But they do not ship, so you have to drive there to get them. So many people listening to this, we're in Vallejo, California, but many people are in Arkansas, mm-hmm. they're in places far away. So they have a passion, but you know, the gas mileage it's too much. They're not <laughs> right. drive. Yeah. 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 Well there's there's Rose Petals Nursery in Florida. What we'll do on this podcast specifically is when you go to look at this on whatever platform you're listening to this folks, there will be an accompanying list of sources for you to purchase heirloom or heritage are are those interchangeable words yes heritage heirloom Mm -hmm. roses and you can also join different groups i know that daryl is the editor for a, a wonderful publication for a group in sebastopol the friends of vintage roses and they have a collection of roses and speaking of selling roses two or three times a year, look on their website, they will have a rose sale. But again, you must drive there to pick them up. Or find someone to drive for you. Yes, and that, <laughs> and that, and that does happen and people do that. But the Friends of Vintage Roses has the largest collection of varieties in the United States. They have over 3,000 different kinds. 3,000? 3,000, yes. Oh, my gosh. How big is this place? Well, uh, it's it's several acres. Several Um, acres, right. right. And who takes care of all these roses? Mostly volunteers and those of us on the committee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every so often, I'll go up there and give them, you know, four or five hours of work. You know, folks out there, I have read the bulletin that this group puts out, and it's, it's well written, and it's actually got a lot of humor in it. So I, th- I think that's thanks to Daryl. It's worth your looking at this and signing up for, if you love roses and you want to learn more, 
this is a wonderful venue to sign up for. And it's very, 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 very inexpensive. And it's enjoyable and inexpensive. And those are few and far between, frankly, uh, these days. So may I mention one other? Yes. Which is the Heritage Roses group, of which I am also an editor for their publication, is another area where, or another source where you can get very good information. So again, if you're in Idaho, or if you're in Visalia, or if you're in Texas, you love roses, these are ways for you to make connections and friendships, frankly, with other rosarians and really augment your collection and get help if you need it. And I would like to add one other thing. Hybrid tea roses, most modern roses, demand a lot of water. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware that climate change is affecting our plants and our landscapes and so forth. And even though in North Dakota they have plenty of water, the lakes are high, the rivers are flowing madly, you know, but in California here, we are in a drought. And there are old roses that are not so demanding of water. They are reasonably drought tolerant. When you first buy them, you will have to water them and take care of them for the first year or so until the root system is established. But after that, you can be fairly carefree about them, especially noisettes, tea, roses, and various ramblers. Just for the folks out there, could you give us a little definition of a noisette and a tea and a rambler. I think we kind of get what the rambler is from the name, but in particular noisette. Most noisettes grow fairly tall, anywhere from, I would say, five feet to 20 feet, something like that. Big. Mm -hmm. They're generally big. There are a few that are short and small that grow three to four feet, but most of them are definitely over five. Definitely, and many of them are in the 15 to 20 feet. And they're known for having flowers in clusters. There's always a scent to them, but they come only in a small range of colors. White, blush, pale pink, clear pink. Some are actually soft yellow, but you're not gonna find any reds or purples. So these would not require a lot of water? Noisettes do not require lot of water, no. That's I, I went hiking up in the Napa Hills and discovered this huge noisette growing, like, who's taking care of this? And it was all full of blooms, and this was in the midst of the, of the COVID. That's, that is such a good piece of information for choice, you know, because as we most of us know by now, a lot of our nurseries are evaporating in a sense, are shuddering, and uh, our big boxes do not carry That's right. these, these beautiful plants. And you really have to, at this point, if you are starting to develop a collection for roses, you are gonna have to order 
and it's not the main ordering groups either. It's not the Van Brodigans. It's not. It's not the main catalogs that most of us know. Right. Um, right. Would, would that be correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're really going to have to, which is fun. It's a, you know, you're you're looking through different options, and you named a site on the internet. Oh yes. That was very it's, good. It's called Help Me Find Slash Roses. And you can find, you can type in any kind of rose in there you want. It is so chock full of information that I can't even begin to start to tell you all that's there. But you really need to look that up if you're interested in roses. Help me find slash rose. And if you don't know what a rose is, or someone mentions the name of the rose and you wonder what it looks like, you can go on there and see the photos of it. It's very, very important. That is a really great signpost for mm-hmm. folks who are trying to find, and I'm, I know I've, I've been there, where I've got this name and I didn't know this site until you shared it with me, and it was so frustrating. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't have the name quite right, and I didn't have the spelling exactly perfectly, <laughs> and you know, got sent to an Italian movie star <laughs> instead. Oh. So... <laughs> Or a French king. Back to Rainbow. You fell in love with Sombre, this rose. Your partner passes. Where does this book come in now? Where, where do you? Where does this well, start? Well, first of all, I wanted to take care of the roses that he had. Yeah. I wasn't, except for that one rose. I had no other rose plants. But when one of the Problem because I didn't water it enough. It was a modern rose, needed a lot more water than I was giving it. You're right. A few of them started to die, so I said, "Well, good. I didn't like that one anyway." <laughs> yeah. Not. So then I started out buying new roses, but they were heritage roses. They were antique roses, and when I couldn't find information enough about them, and this was before I knew about Help Me Find. Yeah. What year was this? He died in 2003, summer solstice of 2003, and by 2008, he had about 42 roses at the time, and by 2008, I had probably 65 or 70, and <laughs> oh my god! And now I have, and now I have 250. You have 250 roses? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and I just got a new one the other day. <laughs> and what was that? It's a rose that nobody sells except for two nurseries in Japan. And what? Yes, but but a fellow that I know who takes care of old roses down in the Pasadena area had bought this nurse this rose years and years ago when there was a nursery that was still selling it. So many of these nurseries have closed, as you said. And I can't remember how I saw it. I must have been when I went down to a rose conference at at the Huntington. But at any rate, I said, oh, I've got to have that rose. Well, I'd completely forgotten I'd said that because that was like five years ago. Right. And then the other day, Greg Lowry, who's a very well-known world authority on roses, was a guest at my house, and he brought it to me, and he says, John says, here's the rose you asked for several years ago. And there it was. It's called Duarte de Oliveira, named for a Portuguese nurseryman gardener. That's also a nice aspect of roses. I feel like 
you could make you know a, a, an opera from these names. <laughs> you yes. know, they have just Mrs. Cleveland. Yes. You know, this, you know, Rev Dor, You know, they're just these great names. Right. Napoleon. I mean, you, you. A lot of them seem to be French. They seem to have well, a yes. lot of French connections. It was the French who really who initiated the rose craze, much like the Dutch initiated the tulip craze. And so, and part of it had to do with Empress Josephine, Napoleon's wife. (laughs) And she was interested in exotic plants of all kinds. And so she had roses. And because she was looking for new roses or different roses, the rosarians of that time, the breeders, started, I'm going to have the queen. I'm going to impress her. I'm going to impress Josephine. And and they started breeding all these roses. So, and the popular rose of the time was the rose we call Gallica. And so... That's a big rose, isn't it, a Gallica? As a plant, it's fairly short. It's never much more than four feet tall. Oh, Okay. The roses are very full. That's what I meant. It's it's a big rose. Yeah, it's a a very thick, full rose. And usually in reds and mauves and purples and maroons, those kinds of colors. Um, It's a big looker. And those were the popular roses for, well, she died in 1814. And they started breeding those around uh, 1800. They remained popular. And then... A rose from China, two roses from China were imported, and they started to cross the China roses with the Gallica roses, and so we began to have more classes of roses and so on. Diversity so, is what we call it now. Yes. We, we, are, yes. we have diversity. We have yes. China and France. They're joined, mm-hmm. joined at the rose hip. <laughs> right. And then we have the damask rose, which we believe, and I certainly believe, came from Persia. Oh, and how how do you believe that? How how do you know oh that? Oh my, I I spent 3 years doing research on that. that you did. But at any rate, there's so much in the ancient literature and the good thing is that some of it has been translated and I'm talking about ancient literature 1100s and even older and things written at the time of Charlemagne, and so now we're talking, you know, what, 788 or something, and it was clear that the rose that they're talking about is usually the damask rose, or what we call the musk rose, that's another one, and everything, every, all the descriptions match, and they, and they find it there still. And what I really cherish about this conversation is the continuum. What you're talking about is horticultural continuum that come what may, man doing this, women doing that, you know, up and down, sideways, backwards. But what continues are these these legacies of plants. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes. when you say, you know, you go to Tehran or you go to Iran and or you go to a garden there and you see this plant, you say, oh my gosh, that is mm-hmm. the damask. You know, that... Right. And it continues. These continue on, cared, uncared for. Just a sidebar here, you did talk about cemeteries mm-hmm. and how you have gone to many cemeteries, I think, in Oregon. And, Usually, yes. And what, what do you find there? Well, I've been going to visit pioneer cemeteries in Oregon since about 
2013. And I look for old roses that might still be growing there, which doesn't mean they necessarily were planted when the person died, but in many cases, they look old enough to have been. I identify the roses, and they're almost always an old, old rose, you know, something from, you know, 1835 or 1869 or something like that, you know. How do you identify, do you are identifying it visually by the flower or you by, because you're so knowledgeable at this point, you can kind of reference what well, they are? you have to be aware of the different classes of roses, okay? Right. And then, you know, damask, gallica, albas, centifolias, hybrid teas, floribundas. You, you have to know those classes. And once you know the names of the classes, now what's distinctive about a damask? What's distinctive about a floribunda? Most people who want to have a rose identified will simply send you a photo of the rose itself. That is absolutely not enough. You need also a picture of the bush. You need a picture of the leaves. You need a picture of the stems. Are the stems smooth and clear? Do they have a few prickles or can you barely hold them because there are so many? What does the bract look like if it has any bracts? Bracts are like a, a leaf that never quite formed entirely, but it'll, you will often see these on roses on the stems. These are things you look for. So. You're really sort of Sherlock Holmes of, of, of the roses. I mean, you're, you've got your you know spyglass out, and, you're, and you've got your deductive powers, of which you have quite a few. But you've learned those deductive powers by study. Yes. And again, folks out there, study is is a great engagement, and building your collections requires a joy of study. It's, oh yes. And that's why joining in in these groups is helpful because you're you can reach out to people, ask them, you know, I found this. If you go to a local cemetery by example and you see a beautiful rose and everyone says, "Oh, I don't know, that was, you know, Bob's favorite." And Bob's been gone about 100 years, but mm -hmm. you know, who yes. knows. <laughs> right. But it might be something extraordinary, like a fruit tree. You know, cemeteries seem to be repositories of history, of cherished history, affectionate history. Right. Um, there is a rose that we call Pulich Children Rose, and it's a rose that was discovered at the gravestone of two children who were buried there. And we wrote an article in the journal I order uh, edit um, the rose letter. We wrote about the finding of this rose. No one, we, and we published photos of it, but no one knew what it was, not even the experts. We still don't know. But what happened because of that? A descendant showed up. A, a descendant showed up. A woman showed up, and she said, my last name is Poolidge, you know? And it turns out that the very person I wrote about in my book was her great-great-uncle. <laughs> that was just so amazing. Those connections, so the connections are about people. They're not just roses, they're, they're relationships. So a rose is a relationship. It's and it's a story. 
Exactly. And I and I love the story and and I keep going back to Rainbow and then taking you off on another uh, well, a, another branch of interest with these plants. You basically seem to have written this book because of your profession being an educator. I mean, I would say that this is a very this is a textbook. Yes. It was as much to inform myself as to inform anybody else. Folks out there, it's very informational and it's sort of striking. Daryl and I were talking about this earlier in Rainbow and, and why don't we say what Rainbow is because Rainbow is a rose that emerged as a sport, and I'll explain sport in a minute, but in 1889, in San Francisco, and the man who found this sport rose, sporting rose, was John uh, Seavers, and he was a nurseryman. A sport is a mutation of a rose. This rainbow originated on the same plant as the rose called Papa Gantier. Papagantier is a solid pink rose. And one day John Seavers is looking at his Papagantier rose bush and he sees there's a rose growing from it that is not just pink, but it has carmine and reddish stripes and streaks in it. And so he took a cutting of that and propagated that and created, and he called it rainbow because of the of stripes. And that's how another way that we get new roses. Is by cuttings. And well, by cuttings, and especially if it's a, I mean, a new rose would be a cutting of a, mut- a mutant. A mutant. A sport. A sport. Mm-hmm. Right. A good sport. A good sport. Yeah, some of them don't, are not much good, but others are, so. So this is the first rose of California, is it not the first? It's the oldest surviving rose of California. I see, oldest good, thank California you. Oldest yeah. California rose, yeah. So it, it's about survival. The, this rose yeah. is, and you can still buy this rose, can you? Can you can still not? buy this rose. I grow it, and once I wrote, wrote that book, I had three or four other people send me a text or a phone message and said that they've now bought the rose, so that was interesting. What would you say this book is, your, your book Rainbow? It's a history of the rose in California. And if I will add to that, it is the history of all the nurserymen in California. Yes, yes. It's not just about the roses themselves. It's about the men who bred the roses. It's about the men who had nurseries and disseminated roses, sold roses to the early population of California. The book goes really from the, the Catholic fathers of the missions who brought roses with them to 1924. And why do I stop at 1924? Well, that's about 75 years of roses that I cover. But in 1924 is when Jackson Perkins moved a branch out from Pennsylvania to California and they started the big fields of roses and the whole rose world changed because of that. It was no longer the smaller nurserymen doing it. it was Independence. The, it was the big yeah. corporate nurserymen now who were taking over. This is a parallel story to many situations, commercial situations in, or transactional situations in the United States is that we've had independents that have not been able to hold their own to larger 
now we call them big box yeah. uh, <clears throat> venues, transactional venues. So what I what I'm intrigued with, and I really rec- this is a very dense book, all of you out there, and it's dense because our history is dense, and it's a very thorough chronicle and narration of these individuals. And the narration is tied to the roses that they were selling. So what Daryl's done is he's given names to each individual grower of what they were known for. And there are details about how many roses they had. And for me, a great deal of sadness, frankly, reading this, because the numbers are enormous of individual roses that are being sold and by these different nurserymen. They're two women, but they're, uh, or three actually, but they have number of varieties like 450. I mean, and that seems like a drop in the bucket for them, you know, a thousand. I mean, these are just enormous, almost incomprehensible numbers of varieties because now we have just Joey, uh, if, you know, it's really a hundred maybe that you hear about, and they come and go very quickly these days. Well, yeah, it's fashion. It's yes. fast fashion. Yeah. We call it fast fashion. And yes. it's, but also, what was interesting about what this book that Daryl has written, Rainbow, is to look at this book as a testament of immigration to California and who these people were. Many of them, if you could explain who they were, where they came from, give us a little bit of information. Okay, well, many of them came during the gold rush period or right shortly thereafter. They came from Scotland, they came from England, they came from Germany, especially any number of them were from Germany. Some came from France, basically the continent of Europe. And they started here uh, as a way to make a living. Uh, A.P. Smith, for example, came here and promptly moved to Sacramento because that's where the gold rush started in that area. And so he thought, well, people are going to need food. So he started growing vegetables and selling food. And then after about two or three years of selling vegetables and doing very well, he realized that you know, people's yards look very naked, you know, maybe they would like some flowers. So then he started raising roses. And lots of them. And lots of them. But unfortunately, he was three times flooded out, as was Colonel Warren, who had also brought most of his nursery and wagons across the plains and um, started a nursery in Sacramento. But after being flooded out twice, he moved to San Francisco and uh, started his nursery there. But I would say the first one who really grew roses in California and sold roses in California was uh, a man by the name of Walker. He was the first one. A.P. Smith came along shortly thereafter. He started with vegetables. He was the first nurseryman. (laughs) But Walker was the first rose seller. And where was he, Walker? San Francisco. Oh, in San Francisco. And in, in the downtown San Francisco. Yes, and in and in the California Historical Society Library, you can see his catalog of his roses. It's still there. This 
and it was a hardcover catalog, and, it was, yeah. and it's just, you, when you look at that, you get so excited because you can see his handwriting. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> and the catalogs are beautiful. I mean, these catalogs from your book, you, you publish a few photographs, and they're the Armstrong mm-hmm. Nursery, which I'd love you to speak a bit about. That is a beautiful catalog. I mean, yeah. I had no idea how beautiful the Armstrong Nursery was historically. In well, their- Armstrong came from Canada, and he and he started a little bit later than these. He started uh, in the very early 20th century, or maybe it was right at the end. For his health, he moved to the Los Angeles area, and he worked for other nurserymen for a while, and then he realized he really wanted to do this on his own. And I so think he was in Ontario, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. 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 He was in Ontario, right. And of course, the Armstrong nurseries became very well known, and he ended up having Armstrong nurseries really all over California. It's a name that still exists, yes. and uh, it's a recognizable name in the nursery trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. A person who really I found interesting, well, there are three I would like to chat with you about is Gill, Sessions, and Shepherd and the Pratts. Gill because of Berkeley and the UC tract there. Oh, oh, Edward Gill. He is the most fascinating, one of the two most fascinating people I've found in, <clears throat> in all my research. This man grew roses by the acres, but out near Salinas, really. His fields were way out there. He, for some reason, he could grow roses that some of the others could not grow. And other nurserymen, as famous as many of them were, and well-known and and uh, frequented uh, by buyers, were still ordering their roses from Gill. That's correct, yeah. yeah. But, well, I, I learned that Kate Sessions was ordering her roses from Gill, which yes. I found amazing. Yes, right. because and she was in San Diego. Right, and she was a grower. I mean, she right. was a native plants woman mm-hmm. of extraordinary capability and a designer. And reading your book was, I, I found the whole legacy of, I think, Edward Gill and then John Gill as the son. Yes, and yes. Mm-hmm. I went to Berkeley, and yeah. so there was always this tract called yes. the Gill Tract, tract. and yeah. we never knew what it was. It was uh, like, it, it, it's an experimental station for right. growing and testing botany, horticulture, I'm not sure what exactly. But the good thing is that when, when the university wanted to build some dormitories there, they the did. students protested because they did yeah (laughs) they did i was right there with them (laughs) and i i never put that together who gill was because Mm -hmm. there is no accessible history I, i think now with the internet it's it's somewhat more accessible but that your book really illuminated that purchase it's 104 acres that they they buy mm-hmm. in Albany and Berkeley and they grow there yeah. and i and it's hard for me to imagine that yeah. now <laughs> given the structure of that urban ecology mm-hmm. 
but it still stands and I really thank you for that as the other nursery West End nursery in San Rafael which is a a nursery that is still in existence yeah it's the oldest nursery still in existence of California and it's it's a lovely nursery it is it's It's a beautiful nursery and I believe still family owned it's still family owned yes and and if you ever want to see some old catalogs they have almost all their old catalogs except the very first I was very frustrated but so were they when they realized they didn't have the first one (laughs) right yeah that was fascinating and then I'd, I'd love to talk about Kate Sessions, who I knew something about. I didn't know who she was exactly mm. and how interesting she was as a horticulturalist and a plants woman and a designer. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about her work in native plants. Well, I don't know too much about that end of it. Uh, Certainly she was essential in getting the Balboa Park. The word I'm struggling for is, is, is planted with trees. The design of the, just the, right. the layout. She did the layout. And, of, and she chose many of the plants and, and, and the trees and so forth. And she also, what I found interesting, now I'm just really parroting your book, is that she was very interested in roses that were requiring less water. Right, right. And that was her purchase from Gill. Yes, were these specific roses. It wasn't just any kind of roses. Right. So Rêve d'Or was a mm-hmm. rose that you mention in your book yes. that was a favorite of hers and that would require not a huge consumption of water. So again, folks out there, there's a whole compendium of roses that really you can plant with great success I mean, look, it was done in the in the 1930s, so in the 1920s by Kate Sessions in San Diego. So. Well, many people don't realize that there are drought-tolerant roses, and it's because the big box stores don't offer them. And so the public doesn't know. They don't know what's they're not shown or... Well, we're told. here to do that. We're here, <laughs> you and I are here to share information with our public because there are few places to find it at this point. So a a person like yourself, Daryl, who has devoted himself to extraordinary research and the effort to write a book is to be, you know, crowned with thornless crown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and there are at least a hundred... 50 roses that do not have prickles or thorns, as people say. Let's share that with them also after our talk here so you can go online and we will provide that for you. I know that is a great annoyance to people, especially as the blood starts flowing. So the other woman who I thought was, I knew nothing about and had never heard her name. Theodosa Shepherd. That is correct. In Ventura. Yeah. Yeah. She came from the Midwest and uh, settled in Ventura, California. And she was a seeds woman. And uh, no one had done this before. And she just started selling seeds of flowers. And the year is 1886. Yes. I mean, this is not... This is not a, a new, new venture here. Right, right. Yeah. And, and she was a hybridizer of pat- 
petunias, which I thought was a, a, such an interesting sideline or main, main interest, petunias and roses. Mm-hmm. And you mention in your book that she is the first nursery person to grow from seed. So that's very important to understand the difference between growing from seed and growing from cuttings. Well, yes, but the old method of growing roses was from seed and or just allowing nature, growing two rose plants or two rows of the same rose uh, different rose plants and letting the wind or the bees or the butterflies pollinate, which was a very slow and iffy way of going about it. Sounds like the Luther Burbank way. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how a lot of them did that. Now, the other thing is, if you grow a rose from seed, it will not be just like the rose that it came from. People oh. don't realize that. Well, oh, think I about it. Think, think, those of you who have children, do your children look precisely like you? No. You can but, see... Yeah, genetic. You can see some genetic mix. similarities, of course. And that's true of roses from seed. If you have a, a cutting yellow, is a clone. A cutting is a clone. And a seed is a new, is a, new, is a new being. Yes. That's yes. that's a very exciting differential. I like that. You also mentioned, although this woman is not in your book, but it's important to know her, is the first rose breeder. Is oh, that correct? Yes, Caroline Herbamont, or maybe it's just pronounced Herbamont. There's an e there, Herbamont, who's from Columbia, South Carolina, and she is the first person that we know who bred her own roses. And her roses are actually listed in, in an old catalog of uh, 1840, 1846 or 1848, something like that. She died in 1836. So she was breeding roses <laughs> a long time ago. A long time ago, 100 years ago, really. She didn't breed many, at least the ones that we know of or were written about. And. Two other women that I found interesting, so that was really interesting, not in Rainbow, but important person to understand that women are part of this history Yes, a long time ago in terms of the United States and the short history that we do have at this point. And we do now have many women rose breeders, and we have had for about the last 30 years or so, and especially from Australia, but also in Canada and, and in this country. Who are these breeders? Are they coming at it through education? I, I was going to say oh. they've gone to ag schools, but um, maybe they haven't gone to ag schools. Well, I'm thinking of one, her last name is something like Weatherly or something. Weatherly? Weathersley? Those of you who know the Rose Iceberg, she bred a rose known as Purple Iceberg. If this is correct, her husband was the breeder first, and then she got excited by what he was doing, so she decided she wanted to do this too. Right, yeah. And so, but her things took off more than his did, so that was kind of good. So I, as I was thinking, and back to what I was saying about ag schools, there are more women in ag schools mm-hmm. now, agricultural schools and programs, but they're also family breeders too. Mm-hmm. So there are daughters and wives and oh, yeah. who have joined in in businesses of 
plant breeding. And a famous breeder in Canada was Isabella Preston, and she, her main goal was to breed roses that could endure a Canadian winter. And she, wow. su- she succeeded, and several of her roses are still sold. Great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and the other are the Pratt sisters, uh, who mm. I thought were interesting as sisters. They had kind of wonderful names. And one of them has a very interesting Blanche. Blanche Pratt, from your book, is the person who has identified our state flower. Yes. So you might yes. talk a little bit about well, that. Well, she she belonged to, I forget the name of the, some kind of a, uh, an organization, a horticultural organization, garden club or something. I don't remember exactly now, but she was asked to be on this committee to select a state flower. And several men spoke up and they wanted X or Y or Z, you know, and, and uh, they couldn't agree on So this, the committee of, of these women got together and she really thought the California poppy grows just everywhere and why should this not be? So she made a case for that and it got adopted. And so the California poppy is the state flower, thanks to Blanche, Blanche Pratt. Blanche Pratt. And that was, folks out there, December 12th, 1890. So we have Blanche to thank. And also she had a sister. Mm-hmm. And they just had the best names. Maybell. Yeah, Maybell Pratt. And these two women had the Fruitvale Rose Company. All of this I have learned from Daryl. <laughs> and our history is those details. History is details. It is the details that are woven together to make the basket. And that is why Rainbow is such a great book. Because it's with effort. It's not a simple book that sort of glosses over people and and is sort of odd graphics, but Daryl thoroughly goes into each nurseryman. And it tells the history of California through the development of nurseries. And I've never seen a book like this that talks about who these immigrants were, what they did, what their businesses were, how they flourished, how they finished. You know, many of them came and and went. They were like the California landscape, always changing. You know, first there were orange trees, (laughs) and then there were development, and then there were, you know, something else. So it's a very dynamic book about a very dynamic state and history. What would you recommend as if someone was going out to just, every house is different, every property is different, we all know that, but what would you recommend as just a wonderful starter for a heritage rose? Oh. Maybe two or three that you think were, you know, again, everyone has different, Mm -hmm. you know, different locations, but for you, in Vallejo, California. I was going to say, so much depends upon your own location. Because if you wanted to grow Gallica roses, they need a winter in which the temperature goes at least to 32 degrees. And they will not do very well if it doesn't. So if you live up in the Trinity Alps, you're fine, or Humboldt State, or uh, Humboldt, or whatever. But at any rate, I would recommend Baron Prevost. 
en oh. Prévost. And why would that be? The fragrance is enough to want to drown in it. <laughs> the color of the rose is a kind of a lilac pink, and it's absolutely stunning. And it's very, what we call, floriferous, many flower, flowers. It'll grow whole bunches of them, and, and the bush can be really covered. It is a hybrid perpetual, which... Sounds good to me. Yeah. Perpetual and hybrid. That's yeah. like too good, <laughs> yeah. like too good with, terms. Which, well, the hybrid perpetuals were misnamed, really, because there are some that only grow, bloom once in the year. Most of them, though, will bloom twice, but they're not blooming perpetually. That's where it, the name is. So they might bloom in the spring and in the fall, something yes. like that. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So French simply call them Raymontan. Raymontan. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. So you're just it's re- repeating. repeating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Repeat climb. Yeah. It's called Raymontan. That's great. So, uh, and is that something one could get at one of these nurseries? That this probably, place? probably. Uh, yeah, it Please is. Please say yeah. yes. Please yes. say yes. Yes. <laughs> Louise Odier it would be another one. These have such great names. Oh, dear. oh her story is, fasc- is fascinating, too. What is her story? <laughs> well, We're just going to com- end with that. It's, it can't it's, be it's, that complicated. Well, but it's complicated because there's more than one rose involved. and There always is. There are so, you know. Okay, so the rose, when the rose, Louise Odier came, people thought it was the father, gave the credit to the father. And... Then it came out, it's kind of a long, drawn-out story over many years. And The father no, is, is the, uh, the breeder? Yeah, the father ra- ra- raised uh, flowers, sweet peas and other kinds of things. And so they, everyone assumed that he bred the rose, yeah. but he didn't. And then Mr. Margotin, M-A-R-G-O-T-T-I-N, said that he was the breeder. I see. Well, then it turns out Mr. Margotine, who was a, who did breed roses and had a nursery, but was found out to misrepresent the truth several times. Mm-hmm. One time even at an international exhibition. And it was found that the rose that he had his name attached to was really someone else's rose. He, uh-huh. So this fellow is... There's a lot of intrigue here. There, yes, that's why this story is very complicated. So it's not the father. And then it turns out it was a soap opera. Right. And it was not even the father who bred all these little flowers, the sweet peas and all these other things. It was his nursery, his head nurseryman, his head gardener, I mean. Of course. Isn't that always the case? And he was simply attaching his name to it. Well, then people found that out, you know. And then finally, the belief now is that it was this head gardener who did Louise Odier. I see. bred Louise Odier. Is this all in France? Of course it is. It's all in France. It's a soap opera in France. Where else could this have happened? Uh, Well, many other places. Anyway, Louise is a very beautiful rose, and you would like that too. Um, And colors? It's another another pink, but a paler pink than Baron Prévost, and it doesn't grow quite as tall, and it is not quite as prickly. Boy, I think this is a great... Well, the soap opera is great to, <laughs> to... We're not ending here. We're just pausing because this story goes on and on, folks. And I, I hope that Daryl will come back and 
and tell us more about the soap operas of these roses. Because as you've said, there are these stories. These plants, all of them have these stories. And some of it's greed, some of it's passion, some of it's passion and greed. Some of it is, you know, good luck. Some of it's bad luck. How they've come to take center stage is not the way we know plants now. The way we know plants now are by cloning programs. But these are by individual. So we've got, again, the big box and the independent. Rainbow is a story of independence. Yes. And that is what is so compelling about this book. Thank it, you. It is independently minded people who have a verve and they have a passion and they're affectionate and they're complicated. And that is life. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank
from, they didn't know the other, but they said, they be believed it was a Gallica. Uh -huh. And I said, there's no way it was a <coughs> So I'm doing all of this research, and just by accident, I come across what uh, this New York nurseryman, Hovey. Hovey's in your book. Yes. Yeah. And But anyway, I, I was reading what he's, he's saying, and he talks about he knew Sam Feast, who bred this rose, Queen of the Prairies, and he tells you, the other rose is Carolyn Herbamont's rose. Oh my God, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, that great? that's great. I got so excited. I thought, like, why has no one ever come across this piece of information before? I mean, it's out there. I think it would be... So we're building up this podcast in a way, there is no other, it, most of the pod, garden podcasts are pretty conventional. They're pretty, they're not intellectual at all. That is not happening. It's sort of growers, like people who grow geraniums and they talk about, and that's great. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. Um, but it's not, these aren't, people like yourself or Joe McBride or mm -hmm. uh, Nancy Petrowski, they're, all, they're not people who are all in the education end of things and are not end of things, but really have a, <clears throat> are well-educated, are writers, are, you know, are interested in. Have you, have you, have you done, uh, interviewed uh, Nancy? I have. Oh. Yeah, and it was a good interview. It's a very good that was the first one. That was the first mm -hmm. one going out. I really yeah, liked she did her. great. Yeah. What did, what, what did... I, I, I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay. Yeah, you I'll send it to you. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, we'll no send you problem. the Joe, Joe McBride's yeah. is very interesting. He's mm -hmm. Succession. Plant Succession. Yeah. Plant Succession in World War Two. Mm -hmm. Oh. And the cities of Dresden and Stalingrad, and what his his focus is all of the cities that uh, Chernobyl where there's been enormous amount of destruction, mm -hmm. what, what is the program after for urban ecology and the conflict 